Good morning. My name is Andrew Maxwell. Uh, today's scripture reading is Ezra 9, verse 1 through chapter 10, verse 5. Uh, that's on page 395 of the Black Pew Bibles. Uh, if you don't have one or you need someone or you know someone who does need one, please take one as our gift to you. Uh, please stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. After these things have been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garments and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returning exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia, to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God and to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, children, gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women, 
than the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take oath that they would do as, they, as had been said. So they took the oath. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Sergei Marchenko. I'm one of the pastors and elders here. All right, so we are continuing our series of sermons on Ezra and Nehemiah. Just to bring us up to speed, it's been about 80 years, not since we started the sermon series, but since (laughs) the exiles returned to Jerusalem in our text. About 80 years, and uh, the temple has been rebuilt. People have been established in the land. They have repopulated Jerusalem. But there is a spiritual problem that is now derailing this progress. And so God sends another leader. There's a new generation of leaders that's coming up. Ezra is coming, Nehemiah is coming, and they're going to help lead the people of God towards a greater renewal and revival. So Ezra comes to Jerusalem. Now he had stayed behind in Babylon. So this is his first visit to Jerusalem. And what he finds there greatly troubles him. He finds that people have intermarried with the Gentile nations of the land. This discovery moves Ezra to offer one of the greatest public prayers in the Bible, which prompts a season of national repentance. So that is what we're dealing with today. We, we read most of the text, and I'll, I'll fill you in on the rest of it as, as we talk through it. Now, a modern reader of this text is left with many questions. Some of you right now are thinking, where is he going to go with that? He might go in the direction I'm not going to like very much. My commitment is to the text. I'd like to answer your questions as I anticipate them the best that I can. And I'm going to show, hopefully, just how relevant this story is for us today. I think a good way to understand this text is to look at the progress that the people are making. We've been using this theme of renewal and restoration and change. And so we see specific stages of renewal happening here in our text. They start with divided hearts, hearts that are distracted from the worship of God and are pulled in all sorts of directions. Then they progress to broken hearts. So we'll talk about repentance and confession. After that, their hearts are captivated again by God. And finally, they they begin striving for pure hearts. So from divided heart to broken heart to captivated heart to pure heart. So that's our outline, four points. Let's work through them. All right, so what, what is the problem here? Let, I, I need to make sure we understand what the problem actually was. What is the sin that causes Ezra such distress 
and requires such a radical response from the people. This is the report we read in the first two verses of Ezra 9. I'll read it again. Ezra 9, 1 and 2. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. Then we have a list of ethnic groups in the land. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wise for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. I am sure that many have preached this text as a prohibition against interracial marriage or even marrying outside of your ethnic group. I am sure that this text has been used as a justification for racism and prejudice. Not only do I think it's sinful to say that, to think that, to uphold that, I also think it's utterly unbiblical. What we see in our text is not at all what sometimes people preach about from this text. The issue here clearly, and I'm going to show it to you, clearly is not racial or ethnic or cultural. The issue here is spiritual. When Israel came out of Egypt and came into the land of promise, God told them not to make a covenant or even show mercy to the people that were defeated by Israel. Israelites were specifically forbidden to marry local people. Now, here's the reason for it. So I'd like to go back to that text in Deuteronomy 7, which is on Ezra's mind, and he quotes from, from that and other, other passages in his prayer. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4, gives us the reason for that prohibition. You shall not intermarry with them, the peoples of the land, given your daughters to their sons or taken their daughters for your sons. Why? Here's the answer. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. The issue isn't that you couldn't marry a foreigner or you couldn't marry a person of another ethnicity or another race. The issue was you couldn't marry a person of another religion. Why? Well, because Israelites would be drawn away from their God. Other deities would be introduced. Other idols would be brought into the home. And so people would become faithless. They would fall away from the true worship of God. The concern here in Deuteronomy as well as in Ezra is Israel's faithfulness to the Lord and the purity of their religion. The issue is a wholehearted pursuit of God alone. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, this is very important to see as you read it, we see people from other races and other ethnicities and other cultures welcomed into the covenant community of Israel. It's not unusual at all in the Old Testament to see people, people coming into the covenant community and being welcomed, no matter what their background was. We can think of Moses marrying an African woman. This is Numbers 12. We can think of Rahab in Jericho and her family who 
join Israel, and it says that they lived in Israel after the, the fall of Jericho. In fact, Rahab, along with Ruth, another Gentile, another foreigner, were grafted into the family of Israel and became part of the genealogy of Jesus. They were welcomed as newcomers into the community of Israel and were given full rights as covenant people. Even in the book of Ezra itself, we read about local people who converted to the religion of Israel and celebrated the Passover alongside with ethnic Israelites. This is Ezra 6, verse 21. So foreigners, those same people of the lands, came into the community, were welcomed, and in fact participated right away in the worship and the celebration of God's redemption of Israel from Egypt. So I want to make very clear that what we're talking about here is not ethnic, it's not racial, it's not cultural. It's not the purity of the race that is at stake here, it is the purity of the faith. The returned exiles compromised their commitment to the Lord by accepting people of other religions into their homes. They affirmed and participated in their idolatry. So their religion became mixed, it became polluted with other ideas, other worldviews, other deities, other idols. That's the problem. Now, it's a much bigger problem then because of the circumstances, which explains why the reaction of Ezra and the leaders of Israel is so drastic, it's so harsh. The solution that's required is to divorce foreign wives and send them back to their towns, to their families. And in fact, the children who were produced out of those mixed marriages were also sent away. That's a a harsh thing that was required of Israel to to get back to, to the religious purity of their covenant community. Now, why? We certainly don't see that in other parts of Scripture where such a drastic response is required. And I'll talk a little bit about that in today's time. But why was the reaction so harsh? Well, think about it this way. The exile to Babylon was caused by the idolatry of Israel. The whole reason God took him out of the land, which now he brought them back to, is so they would be cured of their fascination with other local deities. That was the problem. The problem wasn't as much that they abandoned the Lord altogether. The problem was that they've added other deities to their pantheon, to the worship of the Lord, even bringing them into the temple. And so God takes them out, sends them into the most idolatrous city imaginable at that time, and he cures them of idolatry. So when they come back, they come back as monotheistic, wholehearted worshipers of the Lord. And then what happens next? They get back to the same problem. They start intermarrying other people, starting to worship other gods, other idols, even if it's just complicit, even if it's just that they're allowing that to happen in their families. This is the reason why they went into the exile in the first place. So a point is made here. You can't do that. You have to be completely rid of that kind of idolatry. And so a harsh, harsh measure is required, as harsh as divorce, 
as harsh as a separation from even your children. It's done like that all the time, but at this time, this point needed to be made. I think of another passage in Scripture where, where a situation required an over-the-top harsh response on God's part. You remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, right? They got killed on the spot. That doesn't happen often. It doesn't happen hardly at all anymore. But at that time, there was a reason for such a harsh judgment on those two people. Why? Because in the baby church, the seed of Pharisaic hypocrisy was discovered. And Jesus says, that is unacceptable. And so we now look back to that, and we're saying, this is what God thinks of our hypocrisy, of us pretending at church, of us saying, I'm bringing all of my money when I'm actually bringing some of my money, of me being, appearing to be pious and yet not being pious in my heart. God made a point at that time, just like he did at Ezra's time, to show just how seriously he takes those particular sins at those particular times. This was not to be tolerated. That should make us feel more relaxed today and say, well, God doesn't do that anymore. It should make us look at those examples and say, if God did that then, he still takes it seriously. So we must act accordingly. So the problem was divided hearts. The returned exiles did not hold to the exclusive worship of the Lord, but made compromises to accommodate other idols and even bringing them into their homes. The commentaries speculate as to why that happened. It doesn't seem to be that they were actively seeking to worship other idols, but probably because of economic advantages, making alliances with other families in the land who are more established, perhaps military alliances, maybe maybe uh, making an agreement, a covenant with a certain clan that could be an enemy of yours. That's probably why they did that. But they did that at the cost of compromising the purity of their worship. Worship of the God who brought them home, who had taken them out to cure them of this kind of compromise and idolatry. Now that's the issue here in Ezra. I'm going to make a very specific application that is obvious here, and then I'm going to talk a little bit more broadly about, about this issue. As a pastor, and any pastor would tell you that, too many times I have dealt with Christians dating and marrying non-Christians, or nominal Christians, Christians who say they're Christians, but there's nothing in their lives to, to show that they actually are. I have seen personally many people walk away from Christ because of their relationship with an unbeliever. I have seen many people struggle in mixed marriages. Now think about it. When one spouse is a Christian and the other is not, either the believer will please Christ and thus neglect their spouse, or they will please their spouse and thus neglect Christ. That's the setup. Either you're not going to love Christ as you should, or you're not going to love your spouse as you should, because they are different. They have different desires, they have different goals, they have different values. 
So you have to choose. You can choose one or the other, thus having a bad marriage and having a good faith, or having a bad faith and a good marriage, or most likely you're going to have both your marriage and faith compromised by the circumstances. This is a rational way to look at it. Kathy Keller wrote a great little article about dating and marrying unbelievers. And this is what she says. She says, Does this sound like the kind of marriage you want? One that strangles your growth in Christ? Or strangles your growth as a couple? Or does both? Think back to that off-sided passage in 2 Corinthians 6.14 about being unequally yoked. Most of us no longer live in an agrarian culture, but try to visualize what would happen if a farmer yoked together, say, an ox and a donkey. The heavy wooden yoke designed to harness the strength of the team would be askew, as the animals are of different heights, weights, walk at different speeds and with different gates. The yoke, instead of harnessing the power of the team to complete the task, would rub and chafe both animals, since the load would be distributed unequally. An unequal marriage is not just unwise for the Christian, it is also unfair to the non-Christian and will end up being a trial for them both. So let me address younger people in the congregation, single people in the congregation. I would like you to resolve not to even consider unbelievers as potential spouses. Think through it now before you meet someone without whom you cannot imagine being alive. So think about it now before your emotions kick in and overtake you. Think about it rationally and biblically now. What would you expect from a marriage like that now as you think through it? It's not a good deal. It's not a good idea. It's not a good plan. Now, of course, there are some marriages that start that way and the other spouse becomes a believer, and we have a happy ending. And that is wonderful. And let me be very clear. There are some mixed, unequal marriages in this church that I pray frequently for that the other spouse would become a believer. Because I know that every day there's a danger of the believer walking away or compromising. And so I'm praying along with you, if you are in an unequal marriage, for your spouses to come to Christ. So I am not saying it always turns out badly. But when it turns out well, that is unusual. That is because God is gracious and He had mercy on your spouse. It's not supposed to work that way. Only because God is gracious does it work at all. And so as a young person, as you consider your options, and I know how difficult it is for some people to deal with loneliness, to deal with the lack of affection in your life, lack of a teammate, it, I am not minimizing any of that. But as Kathy Keller says in this article, she says, you think you're lonely now, you feel alone now. Talk to me when you marry an unbeliever 
and you will feel even more alone then. That is not the solution to this. I'd like to encourage you to think through it now and to prepare so that when those opportunities come along, you know how to respond well. I am not wishing something bad for you. I am wishing something good. Because as you're going to wrestle with it in the moment, you're going to feel that this is the greatest blessing that could be just taken away from you. And it isn't. It just seems this way, but it's not. And so you need to, as much as you can, you need to look from it from outside in through the Scriptures and say, I am not going to consider people who don't share my faith as potential spouses. And so that applies to you teenagers, it applies to, to you single people, whatever your age is that you are, when you are considering marriage. It applies to widowers and widows who are to marry only in the Lord according to the Scriptures. Now, if you are in a relationship that is not a marriage, and you are a Christian and, some, and the other person is not, you need to break up with them. And you need to tell them exactly why you're doing that. That doesn't mean you need to stop being their friend. That doesn't mean you need to stop praying for them. But you need to break up with them. If you are married, this is where we need to be, we need to be scriptural. And this is a difficult topic. In Scripture, 1 Corinthians 7, 12-14, Paul tells us we are not to apply the Ezra principle because it's different under the gospel. 1 Corinthians 7, 12-14. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. And there are implications for the children as well. Now, what we're looking at here is a clear command from Scripture that if you are in an unequal marriage now, whether because you made a, an unwise choice in the beginning or because you became a believer in the midst of your marriage to an unbeliever and they didn't, that happens a lot, you are to stick with them as much as you can for as long as you can for as long as they will let you because the hope is that they will become a believer. So, we are not required to do what Ezra tells the people to do in our text because things are different. But we are to consider very seriously who, are we commit, who we're committing to. So as you are dating, as you are considering marriage, it is clear in Scripture that it is not good for you to yoke yourself to an unbeliever. Okay, that's a very specific application for us. There is a broad application to all of this. We are all dealing with divided hearts. We're all dealing with that. My heart is divided. I'm, I'm going to give you an honest assessment of my heart. I hope that it comes across accurately, okay? I used to take my children to Michigan to, to my in-laws, to Jillian's parents, and it's about a two-hour drive, which could be four hours with traffic, it's, you just go around the Lake Michigan and you go up to Michigan a little bit. And, and there's a stretch of that drive that's just nasty. It's this industrial stretch of, of Indiana. You go through Gary, you go through those towns. And, and, and there are a lot of strip clubs in that area, that particular area. 
And as you move and you look at all the billboards, and I remember dealing with this issue in my own heart. I look at that, at those billboards advertising those kind of clubs, and I think to myself, this is disgusting. That's just, that just seems gross. It seems wrong. And at the same time, my heart is pulling me towards that. My heart is both revolting against that. That's new nature. And yet, the sinful nature is still pulling me towards that and finding its appeal in that. How can that be? How can it be that I can both love something and hate at the same time? That's because my heart is divided. Because I'm being sanctified. God is working in my heart. And there's a new nature that is, that is forming, that is growing, that is strengthening. But the old nature is still there. And so I am easily distracted from the Lord. I am easily following other things and other people that rival my worship of Christ. And I would venture to guess you are just like me. We're all dealing with divided hearts. I think the greater danger to us today is not atheism, which is a complete rejection of God, but it's syncretism. It's putting things together with God. It's combining other things and saying, oh, we can, I think we can put it together. I think it belongs together. That is a much bigger problem, even though it is more subtle to diagnose. But we're all dealing with divided hearts. So what does your heart want? I think your heart wants Christ, but what else does it want? What else is in your heart that rivals your commitment to Christ, your devotion to Christ? What for are you willing to lessen your devotion to Christ so you could have more devotion to that? Even as we come to worship this morning, are we not struggling to keep our focus on Christ? I thought the singing today was particularly inspired. And yet, I would lie to you if, if, I, if I say that that whole time I thought of Christ and Him alone. I wrestle. I wrestle with my thoughts. I wrestle with my feelings. and It's hard to stay focused on Christ. My heart is divided. Your hearts are divided. The returned exiles were dealing with the same issue we're dealing with today. What else are you thinking and dreaming about even as you try to pray and worship at church? Whatever it is, that's your idol. Whatever it is that your mind natu naturally wanders to in a moment of silence or quietness or nobody's bothering you, Wherever your mind goes, that is your God. It may not be your only God. You may still be a worshiper of Christ in love with Him, but there are other things. And so your heart is divided. What is it in your life that rivals Christ? What foreign spouse have you taken into your home? Is it a secret sin like pornography or overeating? Is it a respectable sin like overworking or education? Is it a familiar 
average, run-of-the-mill kind of sin like entertainment. Consider your divided heart. What is it? Now here's what happens next. I needed to spend a lot of time on this for us to understand what the issue is. But look at the reaction from Ezra. Ezra 9, verses 3 through 5. This is Ezra saying it. He says, As soon as I heard this, this report, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and my beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. What follows is an amazing prayer. One commentator said that Ezra had a high sense of the glory they had betrayed. And he could not be reconciled to what they had become. This is an honest acknowledgement of the community's sin before God. It is full of pain. It, it's, it is so full of pain that it borders on despair. It's very little hope. There is some, but very little hope in Ezra's prayer. His prayer was naked confession, without excuses, without the pressure of so much as a request, another commentator says. Ezra, look, look at what happens here, the physical manifestation. He tears his clothes, right? He pulls hair from his head, from his beard, which I would imagine would be very painful. He falls on his knees, he, he fasts, he stretches out his hands towards God. He does all these things that communicate this deep passion for God and this deep sorrow over what happened. This is not a half-hearted prayer. He is all in. He totally understands what is happening to the community of Israel. And there are other people that respond the same way. Those who tremble at the word of God. What does that mean? They're trembling at the judgment. They're trembling at the standard of holiness in the law of God. They understand and feel the weight of sin. And so they mourn, they grieve, they cry out to God, they hurt. The weight of sin is so heavy that it breaks Ezra's heart. Look at what he says. He starts by saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you. He's not even sure he can pray. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Now somebody would look at that and say, well, seems like a pretty minor sin, you know, just marrying other people. But Ezra is able to see what the actual issue is. He is able to see the, the division in the hearts of God's people and where it leads. He remembers that it's the same sin that caused them to be taken into exile to Babylon. And he remembers God's mercy in bringing them back, giving them favor with the Persian kings and allowing for the temple to be rebuilt, protecting the remnant against the enemies. And yet, after all of that, 
after this new season of restoration, after a new mercy comes undeserved again to Israel, we have forsaken your commandments again. Because of the sin of compromise, the survival even of the remnant that is left is now in question. This is how the prayer ends. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For none can stand before you because of this. This is where I'm saying there's not a lot of hope. He feels utterly guilty as a member of this community for what they have done. Now many Christians today, and I am absolutely in their number, we can't identify with a prayer like that. We rarely kneel when we pray, let alone tear our clothes and pull out our beards. And I mean, th- those are extreme expressions of physical expressions of our spiritual sorrow over sin. And, and we don't take responsibility for the sins of others, let alone our sins, much anymore. It's not that Ezra's prayer was over the top. I think that we don't have the kind of perspective on sin that we should. It speaks more about us than about Ezra. Ezra has responded in an appropriate way to what he saw. He took responsibility for the sins of his community. Now, as you heard uh, Mark Maxwell pray, elders pray every week, and, and we have been including deliberately confession into our prayers. At our prayer gatherings that engage, we are specifically including public confession into our gatherings. It's important for us to recover that. Now, is it going to look differently for us today? Yes, of course. It's a different culture. It's different people. But should there be the same depth of sorrow over sin? Yes. Absolutely there should be. We shouldn't minimize sin. We shouldn't make light of that. Those are not mistakes. It's a deliberate assaults on God's holiness. Before I move on to the next point, I'd like to give you one quote. And many of you know, all my notes are available online Sunday afternoon, and so all these quotes are in here, and the references are there, so if you want to check them out, read more, please do that. But this is the quote that I'd like you to, to, to think about this week or today. This is from John Bunyan. And this is a definition of sin. I think that's a really good definition of sin. Bunyan says, Sin is the dare of God's justice. It's the dare of God's justice. It is the rape of His mercy. The rape of His mercy. The jeer of His patience the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. I'll I'll say it again. Sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. Friends, if we believe this about sin, we would pray like Ezra. If we believe this, we would pray with that same depth of recognition of the horror of sin. 
Now let me move on. Let me bring it out into more of a positive light, okay? They start with a divided heart. Then that heart needs to be broken before God. But then that heart can be captivated by God again. This is where we are. We are gospel people. We're not going to stay in the law. The law is important. We're going to work through it. But we are gospel people. And so we are going to move on and see what God can do with people like us that have divided, broken hearts. Now remember, Ezra's prayer was public. He was at the temple, at the temple courts probably, and people could see and hear him. Matthew Henry says that that prayer may preach. This was one of those prayer sermons. Because it was public, because people could hear it, and people responded to what Ezra was praying. This was a powerful sermon because it produced this national revival. People gathered around Ezra. They started praying and weeping alongside with him. And finally, this is what happens as a result of that public prayer. Finally, one of the leaders, Shechaniah, says, this is Ezra 10, verses 2 and 3. So we're in the next chapter. Ezra 10, 2 and 3. One of the leaders gets up. They're all praying together. They're interacting with this, this weight of sin. And Shechaniah says, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Oh, he brings in the gospel. He says, yes, we have cried enough, but even now there is hope for us. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. So they resolve now to address this issue and to stop that particular sin in their community. Now what I find remarkable is that Ezra does not tell the people what to do. Later on, he's involved in figuring out the logistics of how do you examine every case and how do you help people process all of this. It takes about three, four months for them to actually do the work. But at this point, he's not telling them what to do. They are so affected by his prayer, his deep repentance, his passionate confession that they are moved to address their sin. The vision of the praying priest captures their hearts. Remember, they were divided hearts, and then they were broken, and now we see the same hearts being captivated by an extraordinary example of repentance. They see something, they experience something, and that changes their hearts. Now here's why I think this vision is so arresting and so moving. First, there was the physical expression of brokenness. Now imagine, people come to church. This is evening sacrifice time. They're all coming to the temple, and they see this respected official, this new arrival, right? This, this pretty popular, put-together, right, person. This priest, this pious priest who's known for his knowledge of the law. And he's tearing his clothes and pulling out his beard, and crying and weeping, throwing himself on the ground, refusing food because of the sin of Israel. That was probably quite a shock to see that. Secondly, Ezra himself is not guilty of anything. All that he's doing here is in response to the people's sin. 
And yes, he identifies with that and he takes responsibility as part of the community, but he personally is not responsible for any of this. And yet he says, we have sinned. It's an innocent person taking responsibility for the guilt of the whole community. Again, that must have been shocking for them to see. And finally, thirdly, this is happening during the evening sacrifice. Even as Ezra is praying, the priests are slaughtering innocent animals for the sins of the people. Blood is being spilled to show the gravity of sin and the necessity of sacrifice, even as people are processing their own guilt. Matthew Henry says, The sacrifice, and especially the evening sacrifice, was a type of the great propitiation, that blessed Lamb of God which in the evening of the world was to take away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. To which we may suppose Ezra had an eye of faith in his penitential address to God. This is a great quote from Henry. He says, He makes confession with his hand, as it were, upon the head of the great sacrifice. As he is praying, the sacrifice is being brought, and people know the blood has to be spilled to cover their sins. And they realize the weight of their guilt. All of that is happening And all of that is part of this arresting vision that they see that moves them to action. They respond to this event, to this priest praying, to the sacrifices being brought, and that changes their affections. It captures their imagination. Their hearts are now being healed, being made whole because of the arresting vision that they just experienced. An arresting vision heals my divided heart, my broken heart. It heals your broken hearts. When you see something that is so amazing, that is so surprising, that is so great, that it captures your attention, your heart can no longer be divided. You are focused on that. You are now locked in, zeroed in on that. For my heart to develop an exclusive devotion to Christ... Not a half-hearted, but an exclusive devotion to Christ. It must be captivated by Him. The more arresting the vision of God is, the less power an idol will have over my heart. You see the principle? As you struggle to keep your focus on God, even this morning, some of you right now, don't try to stop thinking about something else. Start thinking about God who is greater. As you are tempted to sin, don't put all your energy in fighting the sin. Look to God. And as you get this vision of God, who is by far greater than any other idol, anything else that that your heart compels you to pursue, as you see this greater vision the more arresting and captivating this vision of God is, the less divided your hearts will be. Thomas Chalmers, in his great sermon, I keep coming back to this sermon again and again, it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He says, When told to shut out the world from his heart, this may be impossible with him who has nothing to replace it, but not impossible with him who has found in God a sure and satisfying portion. 
What Chalmers is saying is that to get rid of an affection, a pursuit of your heart, an idol, you can't just get rid of it. Something has to come in its place. And so you need to find a greater object of worship to expel the lesser one. Now in the sermon, he's dealing with the influence of the world on the Christian. And he's saying, it's, it's hollow to just say, stop sinning. Stop loving the world. He's saying what we need to do is we need to develop a new affection for God himself. And because it's an overpowering affection, because it's an arresting vision, it pushes all other stuff out. Let me tell you about the vision that can capture our broken hearts. Ezra only pointed to the one who can consume our affections, but we have met him. Listen to one church father. I had to go pretty deep for this one, okay? This guy named Bede, church father. He says, Ezra represents the Lord's Savior, who deigned to pray for our sins both before and at the very time of his passion. You see the connection he's making? The arresting vision of a praying priest was able to expel sin in the community of Israel. So a more arresting vision of the high priest can expel sin from our community. This Savior allowed his hands to be stretched out on the cross and garment of his own flesh to be torn with wounds and mortified at the appointed time on behalf of our restoration. So that as the Apostle say, says, he who died on behalf of our sins might rise for our justification. Bede sees something in Ezra. He sees a shadow. He sees a type of someone who is yet to come. Someone who will also pray on behalf of our sins. Someone who will also, whose clothes will be torn and taken off of him and his flesh will be torn. Someone who, who would put himself in between the sinful people and the holy God. Do you know how seriously God takes our sin and how much he wants a relationship with us? Think of Christ, our high priest, praying in the garden, wrestling with the prospect of his suffering and death, sweating blood in the cold Palestinian night. That's your vision. And that vision is arresting. It's captivating. See Christ on the cross gasping for breath. The one who would later send the Holy Spirit gasping for breath on the cross for our sakes. Hear Jesus scream in pain. Pain he took for us. See him bleeding from his hands, his feet, his side. Hear him crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If there was a little hope in Ezra's prayer, there seems to be no hope in Jesus' prayer from the cross. Utterly forsaken, not just by his friends, but by the Father himself. Think of the one who is totally innocent, righteous, perfectly good, 
the only perfectly good being in existence, dying for the awful sins of his people. Ezra heard himself for the sins of his people, but he was relatively innocent. The animals that were being sacrificed were relatively innocent. Jesus is completely innocent, dying for our sins on the cross. That's the vision that arrests your affections, that captures your imagination. See him rising from the dead, victorious over hell and all of our enemies. Hear him proclaim the gospel of forgiveness to us. Think of his eternal commitment to you. Consider his mercy and grace. That is the vision that is able to pull together our divided hearts and heal our brokenness. That is the vision that can capture our hearts. That's the vision that is powerful enough to draw our attention away from the world. So the question is, is your heart captivated by Christ? Now as you and I wrestle with idolatry, with compromise, with our divided hearts, as we think of things and people that rival God in our lives, as we struggle to do what we want to do, to live wholeheartedly for Christ, to worship Him, to follow Him, love Him with our whole being, as we do that, here's the most practical advice I can give you this morning. Focus on Christ. Focus on Christ. Make it your habit to meditate on His person and on His work. Behold His glory in Scripture, in prayer, in worship, in ministry, in service. Pray for the Spirit to keep cultivating your affections toward the Savior. Friends, that is the only hope we have for our hearts to be healed and made whole again. Otherwise, we will run in every direction we can. There's only one thing that can arrest our hearts, that can pull us together, that can capture Him again, and that is our Savior Himself and the work of redemption. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Our goal is purity of heart. We start as people with divided hearts. Then they get broken by the recognition of sin. Then they get captured by Christ. But then the goal is for them to become pure. A pure heart simply means a, a single pursuit, a single focus. And through that lens, you see everything else, every other pursuit in life. So you see the connection between seeing God and the purity of heart. Only the pure of heart will see God. But only those who see God can develop the purity of heart. Here's this sermon in one sentence. Our divided hearts are made whole by the arresting vision of our Savior. Our divided hearts are made whole by the arresting vision of our Savior. We go from idolatry to brokenness to being captivated by the vision of Christ to pure, wholehearted, exclusive allegiance to God. Where are you in that process of renewal? Is your heart divided and you're happy to stay there? 
Has your heart been broken with the Holy Spirit's conviction of sin? And so are you responding to that not by valuing, I can't say that word, not by stain and guilt and shame, but by turning to Christ and looking to Him and finding that that vision can change you. And as that vision changes you, you pursue a pure heart, a single-hearted, single-minded devotion to Christ alone. I'm going to give you the story. Some of you, if not many of you, have seen it. It's all over the social media. So if you're on any kind of social media, even if you're on the Hulu, you've probably seen it. Monty Williams is a basketball coach. He's an assistant coach at Oklahoma City. Um, and he, his wife was killed in a car accident just a few days ago. His eulogy is about seven minutes. If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to watch it. You can easily find it online. It is very encouraging. And it is a great illustration how someone who has developed a pure heart can remain in that purity of purpose and purity of focus, even in the midst of tremendous pain and tremendous struggle. His wife of 20 years, the mother of their five children, was killed in a car accident that was not her fault. It was someone else's fault. And here's what Williams says at the funeral. This is one quote. What we've gone through is pretty tough, and it's hard, and we want an answer, and we don't always get that answer when we want it, but we can't lose sight of the fact that God loves us. And that's what my wife and that's what I try to, however badly, exhibit on a daily basis. But God does love us. He loved me so much that he sent his son to die for my sins. I was so encouraged by that. A man in the midst of unimaginable pain and grief. Caring not just for his children, but also caring for the other family that lost someone. And asking for forgiveness to be extended to them and for prayers to be extended to them. In the midst of all of that, he is not losing sight of what he says is the most important thing. And as the love of God expressed to us through Jesus Christ. He is able to keep that pure devotion, that single focus, that single-minded pursuit of God, even in the midst of all of that. Because if your heart has been captured by this vision of Christ on the cross and in the empty tomb, the purity of heart can be maintained even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of temptation, even in the midst of tremendous struggle. Williams has this arresting vision of the crucified Christ. That's what keeps his heart pure even in the midst of his circumstances. He sees God and he worships him even then. I'm going to finish with this to prepare us for communion. I read an article this week that posed an interesting question, interesting at least to me, maybe not to you, but at least to me it was fascinating to me. The question was, how come the early church for the first four, five, six, seven centuries did very little theological work 
on the atonement of Christ, on understanding how salvation works. In other words, developing themes like justification by faith, or substitution of Christ on the cross, or the idea of of how His righteousness is imputed to us, is applied to us. Now, these are familiar concepts to us today, but they developed much later. The early church did great with the Trinity. We own that. They did great with the, the person of Christ and the two natures in one person. They did a lot of theological work in those areas, but not in the area of sin and salvation and redemption. Why? Well, this article gives this answer that is satisfactory to me. The answer is that they grasped the significance of the saving work of Christ, not through theological thinking primarily, but through the celebration of the Lord's table. Historically, this was a big deal for centuries. It started changing later in the Middle Ages, but for centuries that was a celebration of the church. That's why people got together to partake at the Lord's table. And they saw the vision of Christ at the table. And it arrested them. It captured their imagination to the point that they didn't feel the need to use words a whole lot. They believed what we believe now. They just didn't express it the same way because they've experienced it at the table of our Lord. So as we come to communion, I'd like us to recapture this vision of Christ, the crucified and risen Savior, who for your sakes died and rose again to save you, to love you, to bless you. That is why we come to the table. Every Sunday we come to the table for that, to get another glimpse of that vision, to have our hearts be affected by that, to have our faith nourished by that. I spent a long time talking. That's important. Teaching is important. Scripture is important. But there is also something to be said for the experience. And so as you come to the table, and you're going to touch and smell and taste, as you do that, this is all supposed to help you see Christ for who He is. As a believer, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, examine your heart Confess your sins. Yes, do that. Be careful with your divided heart. But then come. Come in your brokenness. Come asking for help. This is where help comes from. This is where hope comes from. This is where healing comes from. It comes through Christ, the one who died and rose for you. If you're not a believer, I encourage you, to take this time not to come with everybody to the table, but to look at Christ, to behold Him, to consider Him as your Savior. If you're not a Christian, you could be one today. You could become one today by getting a vision of Christ, dying and rising for you because He loves you. As you do that, as you meditate on Him, as you consider Him, and I hope that you do, that you take it seriously. Maybe your heart has been broken with your realization of your own sin. That's not enough. It needs to be recaptured by Christ. And as you do that, I hope that you can say along with Rutherford. He said, since He looked upon me, 
My heart is not my own. He has run away to heaven with it. I hope we can say that. Since Christ looked at me, my heart is not my own. He took it and ran away to heaven with it. Captured me completely. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful that you are a God of grace, God of mercy, that you don't leave us in our brokenness, in our idolatry, in our sin. But you come to us, and through the work of your Son, you recapture our imagination. That you draw us in to show us who you are, to reveal yourself in your glory to us so that we could be transformed into more faithful followers of Jesus. We pray for your Holy Spirit to remind us again of who Jesus is, to give us that vision again. So in our hearts, in our minds, we can look up and see Jesus dying, see Jesus rising, see Jesus ascending for our sakes. And let that image, that truth, that vision captivate us completely. We confess our sins. Many of us have struggled with very particular sins this week. All of us have hearts that are by nature divided. Lord, we pray for healing. We pray that you would assure us of your forgiveness in Christ. We pray that you would give us hope. That you would encourage us at this table. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself.